Well, good morning, Park Hills. It's good to be with you all. Um, I'm excited to be here. Your guys' liturgy, your order of service is, is excellent. I think the only thing that I could possibly do now is, is ruin it somehow. So I'm very thankful to be here. I've already been blessed. Um, the preacher standing before you this morning was brought to you by Pastor Ed Moore. I mean that in two ways. Number one, he tricked your senior pastor, Samuel, to actually getting me to be here in the pulpit this morning. So you can thank him for that. But Ed Moore is also was my pastor back in New York. He married me and my wife. He baptized my wife as well. Um, and, and Ed's ministry, the best parts of it, uh, which I think include preaching, um, they belong to the... Um, to the character and to the privilege of having to sit under Ed's ministry. And so if today goes really badly, then we all know who to blame, all right? Um, so I've been working in student ministry for over six years now, and I can quote to you all kinds of figures about the current generation of teenagers being some of the most anxious ever recorded, uh, the epidemic that we're facing in future generations. If we don't find some way to curb this rampant issue and its, its terrible devastation on mental and emotional health. Uh, I mean not to undermine any of those studies or that research or the validity of those claims or, or anyone's personal experience in here. But anxiety has never been and is not a generational problem confined to those who are being brought up in the most technological age ever. It is simply a human problem faced by billions who do not believe that there is a heavenly father who cares for them. We are all anxious. We are all prone to it. We are prone to it because our first parents felt it keenly when they heard the Lord walking in the cool of the garden, knowing he knew their sin and that the consequence of it was death. Anxiety now has matured further and springs from all directions and fountains, worrying now about family, careers, money, school, diagnoses, time, wars, crime. News and daily reports assault us. But anxiety is not a 21st century phenomenon, and its effects are not new. But neither is the cure, because it is a spiritual reality. It is a battle of the mind for the heart. And that is what we are going to be considering this morning from Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 9. So I asked if you have your Bibles to please turn there. And I would also ask you if you would now stand for the reading of, of God's Word. Would you stand with me as I read God's Word for us this morning? Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 9. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, Whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. You may be seated. 
Let us go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. And we thank you, God, that there is a text in the Bible that calls us to rejoice. That must mean you have done something so that we might rejoice in you always. So, Lord, be with anybody. Be with us. Lord, if there's any anxiety, may we cast our burdens onto you. And, Lord, might we believe, might we possess a little bit deeper the reality that you are for us and our salvation is secure and that affects how we live today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the most prominent themes in the book of Philippians is that of joy. God desires that you would be filled with joy always. And so he uses this letter written by Paul to the Philippian church to encourage and teach us about it. Uh, Philippians 4.4 is a succinct summary of the main exhortation Paul is trying to communicate to the church that they and we might have sufficient reason to rejoice always in the Lord. Paul says the reason that he labors on despite persecution, despite his current imprisonment, is so that he might proclaim Christ and the gospel for the progress and the joy of his hearers. Chapter 1, verse 25. He speaks of his joy in theirs throughout the letter. He repeats the command again and again to rejoice. In Philippians 2, 18 and Philippians 3, 1. And then finally in Philippians 4, 4. This small verse is arguably the heartbeat of not just the letter to the Philippians, but the entire Christian walk. That we should rejoice. We should delight ourselves in the Lord always. Joy in God is not a suggestion, according to Paul. It is the characterization of the Christian life. But how does one truly honor and obey a command such as this? Joy is something that oftentimes just feels so fleeting. Can we really be called upon by God and be held accountable to do something that we feel we have so little control over What about those of us who deeply struggle to be joyful? This command is not joy-producing, it's stress-inducing. And you would be right. If we were left to ourselves, there would be little help in overcoming the predispositions of our fallen flesh. If do not be anxious meant, hey Christian, now you must work very hard to find everything that you need to make your life less worryful, less doubtful, so that you can obey this command I've given you to rejoice always. If that were actually the case and what God was saying, that would be soul crushing. We would be left to become our own saviors from anxiety and from doubt. And the fact is, that is indeed what many religions and spiritual faiths and secular humanism teaches. You figure out how to be less anxious. However, brothers and sisters, do we not have a different testimony? And that is that we have been brought, bought by God, born again by the Holy Spirit. And the life that we live is not our own, but Christ in us, who has made us alive. This is not our own doing. We did not put those operations into motion. It is not earned or deserved, but we serve a God who is merciful and loving. Instead of being left to our own devices to figure out how to be 
less anxious, and to live faithfully, Paul describes something a little bit different in Philippians. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 13, he says this, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. What that means is, is Christians are not left to themselves. They are aided. They are worked in. They are not alone. And they are kept by a power that is greater than themselves. Now, I suspect that we all know that in our, in our head. We may even be able to go to the scriptures and give an apologetic for it. But my simple aim this morning is that by the same spirit that we will get that a little bit deeper into our heart. That this command to rejoice always, the imperative to not be anxious, this exhortation to be prayerful that produces the peace of God won't be something we merely know about in our minds, but rather we understand that God intends for us to experience that as the norm, as the normal. I don't want, and you should not want, flash-in-the-pan joy. We should want what Paul speaks about in Philippians 4. I want to rejoice always. I want the peace of God. I want the God of peace. I want gentleness and reasonableness to be so evident in my life that it is actually palatable to other people. I want to live in a manner of life that categorizes the biblical idea of shalom, that communicates not just what I know about God, but I experience God in all of his love, communion, peace, his presence deep in my soul, which overflows into something tangible. It overflows into something that is detectable, traceable, back to its source in all areas of my life. Now, I realize what I've communicated to you this morning, that's, that's very lofty language. But I don't think it's exaggerated. Paul says, it is ours in Christ. So I hope when you hear the word rejoice, by the end of this message, you don't hear me talking about pop psychology or finding your mantra or, or figuring out where your happy place is. I'm talking about what God's word reveals about what God has already done for your everlasting rejoicing. So church, I want what is objective about the Christian faith to be and to match the subjective experience of your Christian walk. So, this is what I'm hoping to unpack for you this morning. Armed with that lengthy introduction, Paul has not left us to imagine how we are to obey the command. He outlines it for us to rejoice in God always. So let me now draw your attention to that primary command, rejoice in the Lord. An important distinction in the quest for joy is what we are to rejoice in. The command Paul gives is not rejoice always. Again, I say to you, rejoice to just emphasize the importance of the command, but we are to rejoice in something, or rather, someone that is greater than the circumstances or the situations that you might be feeling today. We are to rejoice in something, 
Or to say that another way, because of something about God that is always worthy of rejoicing over. Let me give you an example of the experience, of that experience. Consider a man who has, has recently been laid off from his job, but him and his wife are about to have their first child. Now to lose your job the day before you're about to have your child, that can be a pretty stress-inducing situation. However, it should not cripple, it should not eclipse the actual rejoicing that he should do in the birth of his child. He rejoices in the birth and the life of his child despite the external circumstances that is around him. Let me give another example. On any given day, I take much delight in my wife. Unless we've had some kind of fight or we have sinned against one another that disrupts that enjoyment, I can always look at the sweetness of our relationship. I can look at my children in the midst of any situation and find myself being joyful, being thankful that they are in my life. That reality should not change. My joy my wife should not change based on external circumstances. I rejoice in Jenny as my wife, and I rejoice in being the dad to my children. But analogies only go so far, right? Our joy in people may de be dependent on changing dynamics that are in the relationships. But when we rejoice in the Lord, we are rejoicing in a God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We believe in a God who is all-powerful, good, and wise. He is a God who has promised he will never leave nor forsake us. But more so than all of that, we believe in a God who has the power to work in and through us because we are united to him by faith in his son, Jesus. God can act upon me, work something in me, in ways that my children or my spouse could not. Consider the new birth. By the power of the gospel, God has enabled and produced in us a capacity to love and to delight in him in a way that we did not before. We who were once dead are made alive by the Spirit of God, who has now raised us from the dead in Christ, transformed our heart of stone into a heart of flesh, and now we've been given new affections. We did not cause that. God produced that in us. God in power works into us these things. And so because all of the Christian life begins and ends by the power of the Spirit, God is not telling you to go and figure all of this out or work apart from him and then come back and present your findings. Joy can be found because God can produce joy in us when we meditate, when we consider all that he is, all that he has done for us in Jesus. So he delights in giving us reasons to rejoice, causing in us rejoicing. And he does this by giving us himself. My point is, rejoicing in the Lord is not something that we conjure up. It is not determined ultimately by our fickleness or the ever-changing circumstances all around us. The foundation and the fountain of it is God 
himself. God effectively works joy into us to obey the command by being a God who is infinitely worthy of being rejoiced in. We rejoice in the Lord. We rejoice in a person, God in Christ for us as a means to overcome the soul-crushing effects of sin and anxiety. And it's all because we always, he is always a sufficient reason to rejoice. If you can grasp that first premise then, then you can kind of follow Paul's logic into verse 5. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. And let your reasonableness be made known to everyone. Now, in this case, I think I'm informed enough to say that the ESV translation of reasonableness can be slightly misleading, but that's okay. In most instances, the word reasonableness is translated as gentleness. So if you look at your NIV version, you'll see the word gentleness there. And it carries with it a relational connotation. So let me give you an example. In 1 Timothy 3.2, speaking about elders, Paul says, An overseer must not be a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, same word that we see in our text this morning, not quarrelsome. In Titus 3.2, with respect to submission to rulers and authorities, the Christian must avoid quarreling, to be gentle, epiakia, same word, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. So I think it's better, perhaps, for today to consider the translation of gentle forbearance. Let your gentle forbearance be known to everyone. What Paul is arguing for here to the Philippians, and namely that all Christians, is that we should not be duplicitous. We should not be duplicitous in our joy that we have obtained in the Lord and then the manner in which we treat one another. Those two things should not be at odds. Because saying that we treasure Christ, that we've been bought by his precious blood, but acting like that changes nothing in the way that we commune with one another, betrays the good news we proclaim. In fact, I just quoted to you where gentleness was in Titus 3.2, and if you look at the very next verse, Paul gives the logic for why Christians should be gentle. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, and then that transformed everything that he said in verse 3. To not practice this, this epiakia, to not have it be something that can be detected by others, it betrays the life-changing experience of gentleness and forbearance that God has shown us. It betrays Christ-likeness. It is not compatible with the exhortation Paul gave earlier in Philippians 1.27. Let your manner of your life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. This is why Paul says in the narrative that very next verse, do not be anxious because anxiety does not produce epiakia, gentleness, forbearance. Church, have you ever seen an anxious, gentle person? 
Have you ever encountered a forbearing and patient worry wart? I don't think you have because those things do not go together. They are like oil and water. It is hard to be forbearing. It is hard to be patient. It is hard to be gentle and reasonable when you are filled with all manner of worry and angst. Anxiety does not produce the epiachia Paul is speaking about here. You want to spot the relationship between your anxiety and your gentleness? I ask you to consider your homes. Now, I'm sorry to do this, parents, but I'm about to expose you to all the kids in the room. I'm glad my children have left so they don't know the secret of mom and dad, okay? My kids haven't quite caught on to this yet, but I believe they will. But if mommy and daddy are anxious, or sorry, not anxious, we're not stressed, we're rejoicing in the Lord, well, there's going to be a lot of forbearance. There's going to be a lot of patience in the home. Oh, you spilled some milk? Let me get a paper towel. Let me, let me wipe that right up. Oh, you got spaghetti all over your shirt? Let me change your outfit. Right? A lot of patience. Lots of forbearance. But if me and my wife are struggling with anxiety and schedules and p- places to go, people to see, we have a timetable to keep, and now we're anxious. Oh, no. Those spilt milk situations, the the spaghetti all over, you're going to see us lash out. We are not going to be very epiachia, gentle, forbearing. And this is something that Paul says should not characterize the one who is always rejoicing in the Lord. Anxiousness is not befitting for Christian life because, number one, it does not rightly reflect the value and the life-altering change of having God to others. Number two, God has already dealt with the one thing that can truly and ultimately devastate you. Third, Jesus teaches, therefore, do not be anxious because your heavenly Father already knows what you need. Matthew 6. Paul says, because that's true, we ought to have a gentleness about us. That, that can be detected by others, that can be traced back to its source in rejoicing in the Lord always. But Paul doesn't stop there. He kind of interjects this thought here for another reason to be motivated to pursue gentleness. He says, he just kind of adds it. It's very quick. He says, let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Wait, what does the Lord being at hand have to do with any of this. Paul's inclusion here of the Lord being at hand is a helpful reminder that a Christian ought to maintain an eschatological perspective when it comes to the Christian life. About 15 of you just doled up. What's an eschatological perspective, Dan? That's just fancy talk, all right? That's just fancy talk for saying time is short, the end is near, so mind how you live. That is why Paul said earlier, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. The Lord is at hand. I'm sure many of you can imagine a scene in your mind where a family has been estranged for years. Something many years ago caused them to have a relational rift and now they've, they've held grudges. They no longer talk to one another. They have unresolved differences. But news breaks that one of them has been taken ill 
with a life-threatening disease. Now all those family members are called, and now they are at the hospital standing over the sickbed. The person who they were once at odds with, they now acutely are aware of the, the brevity and fragility of life. No longer is there time to hold grudges now. Now they feel a sense of loss, of regret. It fills both parties who wish that they had redeemed the time. And why didn't they restore the relationship sooner? They sense the missed opportunity to have communicated more to each other, bitterness and hostility. Brothers and sisters, there is no place and there is little time to be callous toward one another, to be harsh, to be holding grudges. Paul is correcting the Philippian church because as you might recall earlier in chapter 4, he exhorts Iodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. There is some kind of rift that's beginning to pull the Philippian church apart and he tells them now, agree in the Lord. Let your reasonableness, your gentleness be made known. He has told them throughout the letter to consider others more highly than themselves, to have and to share the mind of Christ to honor Epaphroditus, who nearly died for the work of Christ to serve them. He knew, and they knew, we're going to send Epaphroditus, but why don't you send back Timothy, because we kind of want him more than Epaphroditus. Church, ought we not to honor the Epaphroditus's that we have, not the Timothy that we want? Christians are to be characterized with a Christ-like gentle forbearance in all circumstances to everyone the Lord is at hand so how do we reorient our lives our hearts if we find ourselves out of step with the commandments how do we keep ourselves in step well Paul continues by describing the means by which we can counter anxiety and the way in which we might renew and maintain rejoicing in the Lord always we can rejoice always by knowing his power, his presence, and peace through prayer. If you want God's power, his presence, and peace, you get it through prayer. J.C. Ryle writes this, If anxiety is the enemy to delighting in God always, prayer is the weapon of choice. Prayer is the mightiest weapon that God has placed into our hands. It is the best weapon in every difficulty and the surest remedy in every trouble. It is the key that unlocks the treasury of God's promises and the hand that draws forth grace and help in time of need. It is the silver trumpet that God commands us to sound in all of our necessity and it is the cry he has promised always to listen to. What an encouraging way to think about prayer. Paul says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, make your requests be made known to God. What is Paul communicating to us about prayer? First, the Lord does not restrict or limit the requests that can be made to him that provoke anxiety in us. 
1 Peter 5, 7 says to cast all your burdens onto him. Why? Because he cares for you. By not placing a restriction on what we can bring to the Lord, we are invited to bring literally everything. Bring it all to the Lord. He is not made weary by your pleas. In fact, he longs to draw near to you through your dependent prayers on him. The problem is God does not have time, does not have the time or the resources or the bandwidth, or he sets some kind of limitation to our prayers. Rather, he is more ready to hear than we are to pray. He is more ready to give than we are to ask. But the second thing that we learn about prayer is the freedom with which we can come to the Lord with everything. In prayer, there's a direct parallel here to the command, rejoice always, and then to pray in everything. What I mean by that is, look at the absolute, universal, comprehensive language Paul uses about these things. He says, rejoice always. Do not be anxious about anything. In everything, let all your requests be made known to God. And then the peace of God surpasses all understanding. Those all have a connection. Well, what does all of that mean? It means there is no qualification to what you can bring to God in prayer. You should feel liberated. You should feel freed to bring it to the Lord. As a friend of mine says, he says, get busy bringing all the things that make you anxious to the Lord. Whether they be big or small, heavy or light, significant or insignificant, it doesn't matter. If it is causing your heart to be anxious, bring that to the Lord. There can be nothing that is too trivial that should hinder us from making our request known if it jeopardizes rejoicing in the Lord always. Thirdly, we learn there is a manner in which we are to pray. Paul is general and specific in the kinds of prayers that we can give. He mentions prayer generally. And then he says supplication, which is more specific. Supplication here just means pleading for help to God for a particular situation. Pray your prayers. Give praise to God. Confess things. Feel the freedom to request help in every circumstance. But the manner in which you pray and make supplication is modified by a very important word. Thanksgiving. We are to bring our prayers with thanksgiving. What that means is making our requests made known to God with thanksgiving does not mean being very polite with the Lord and just saying, thank you for giving me this or thank you that you might send that. Thanksgiving operates here as a posture, a necessary condition an explicit acknowledgement of our creatureliness and our dependence. One commentator says it like this, gratitude or thanksgiving is the verbalization before God of his goodness and generosity. I'm going to bring my kids back in now, right? So when they ask me for something, if they're asking in an entitled way, I am generally not going to give them what they want. Get me that yogurt, Dad. Really? 
Because there is something that's going to follow now after that, and it's definitely not yogurt, right? In the same way, we are not to be presumptuous when we come to God with our requests. Hey, get on that. No, we acknowledge God in all of these things. Lord, you are good. You are kind. You are generous. And I trust that whatever I receive from your hand is what is needful for me. John Piper says it like this, In prayer we admit our poverty and God's prosperity, our bankruptcy, his bounty, our misery, his mercy. Therefore, prayer highly exalts and glorifies God precisely by pursuing everything we long for in him and not ourselves. We present our request to the Lord with trust because we know that he is good and just to meet them. Lord, I have requests. You have the answer. I have wants, but you know what I need. I am weak, but Lord, you are, and you can make me strong. Well, what is the net result then if we come to the Lord in a posture of prayer like this? Verse 7 gives us a promise. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Jesus. The direct result of prevailing thankful prayer in the life of the Christian is that they are they're given something. They're given peace with God. Now I'm not sure if you knew that but that's highly desirable. You want the peace of God. When was the last time you prayed Lord give me your peace? Now, an error here might be to conclude and to insert into peace whatever you think that means. Oh, peace just means I'm going to be able to manage my anxiety for a little while. That God will just make you feel a little better from time to time when you pray sincerely. But the peace of God and what Paul means is a much fuller term than than feeling good every once in a while and goes far beyond than just being a little less anxious. The peace of God is at, is at least four things in Philippians. Number one, the peace of God is peace from God. We do not produce the peace in us by making the prayers. This peace is granted to us by God's grace as a gift with our prayers. It's the very thing Paul in almost all of his opening of his letters. He beseeches God and the churches for the churches. In Philippians 1, he says to the saints who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father. The peace of God is produced in us not by our will, not by some kind of prayer formula or wishful side effect of praying and, ooh, pop in peace. It's a gift from God. It's much like joy. It has to come directly from him, from his hand. Number two, the peace of God is peace with God. It is only by the shed blood of Christ that we are able to have this peace. It is his life, his death, his resurrection that has given us reconciliation with God. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus. Paul is quick to remark that this peace which surpasses all understanding, is made available only in Christ Jesus. 
Everything else, every earthly peace, is a manufactured one. Because no peace with God means no peace of God. Third, the peace of God is said to surpass all natural understanding. That's not to say that it's senseless or irrational, but rather that it surpasses the natural man's capacity to adequately explain or fully comprehend it. This may be what the Old Testament authors meant when they thought of shalom, peace, wholeness, and well-being that comes from a life lived before God, an experience of God and his blessedness. But now the peace of God is not something that we have to go looking for, earn it, or merit it. It is experienced in the Christian because they have been given the mind of Christ. We are made new creatures with new spiritual capacities that are only beginning in knowing the depth, the height, the breadth, and the love of our wonderful Savior. The peace of God surpasses all natural understanding. And the reason that is, is because if you were an outsider looking into the life of the believer, you may notice something. The thing that the Christian prayed for, it might not seem there's any effect. God hasn't really answered the prayer in the way that it was prayed for. But for the Christian, prayer accomplishes everything in changing the person making the prayer. It's not that we just get the benefits from God in our prayers, but he is actually transforming us. Church, if God will give us nothing more than his peace in times of our suffering, the conscious awareness of his pleasure, his blessing, his nearness, his love, his perfect care, do you, the Christian, really care ultimately whether or not God performs what you requested of him exactly as you requested? No, if we have the peace of God, that is our aim. That is the goal. Lord, help me to have your peace in this situation whether or not you change it. Because God always answers better than our ignorance asks. We trust in the character and the goodness of a holy God Because he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Romans 8.32. We as Christians are promised his perfect peace that surpasses our limited understanding. Thus our rejoicing in God is not contingent on circumstances being made better for us. Joy is in having and knowing Christ, who is our peace. Fourthly, the peace of God is his protection. Paul says that the result of prayer is a peace that goes beyond merely disarming anxiety, but it is also the double cure, because it guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God is a guard, Isaiah 26.3. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts you. 
The peace of God granted in prayer protects our hearts and our emotional lives. It guards our minds from sinful and joy-robbing, anxious thoughts. It protects us from the schemes of the evil one who attempt to warp and twist God's word and to lead our minds away from truth. The clear teaching of scripture in times of your anxiety is that you are to pray. Because prayer unlocks the peace of God. There is no other path toward consistently rejoicing in the Lord. And so I encourage you to take hold of your greatest weapon in the fight for joy. And to pray earnestly on the things that bring you fear, worry. Because when you do, God promises you something. He promises you his peace. But Paul doesn't stop there. That sounds really good, but he said, let me keep going. He pushes his exhortation further into the practices and instruction on life and the inner mind that we can continue to enjoy more of the presence of God. So look with me at verses 8 and 9. How do we fortify our mind in Christ? He says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable. If there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, he says, think about these things. That's a lot of things to think about. We could spend here all day enumerating on what those might mean. There are so many good things we can fill our minds with. And I think he lists these virtues like this because as sin-prone people, I don't think we gravitate to thinking the way that Paul is describing here. We are bent to want to focus on the bad. I mean, Austin traffic is an object lesson on the human condition and the reality that we like to focus on the bad. We're driving by. Everyone slows down to see the train wreck, right? We all slow down. We want to know what's going on. Whatever is happening at our jobs in your homes, your health, your finances, the economy, politics, climate. At any given time, if you dare turn on the news or listen to it, what is the ratio you think of things that are celebrated as good versus the things that are negative and anxiety-inducing? Let me show you a picture, right? That's the scale. In your own thoughts then, in your own inner life, does your mind tend to gravitate towards things that are lovely, just, true, excellent, and honorable? Or things that often encourage and foster more fear, more worry, and more doubt? We live in the age of anxiety because apart from God, And the good news of his son, Jesus Christ, there's no hope. There's no real peace. There's no lasting joy. We have every reason to be anxious then. Paul understands and knows the battle for our hearts begins in the mind. That's why he says in 2 Corinthians 10.5, we must take every thought captive to obey Christ. Romans 12.2, do not be conformed to the world and this Don't put yourself in the position to feed on the negative thoughts and values that can rob you of your joy in God, but be transformed 
by the renewal of your mind. Colossians 3.2, set your minds on things above where Christ is seated and not on the things of earth. If you truly believe that you have nothing else to think about right now that is good and praiseworthy, if your life is really marked by nothing you can say is lovely and excellent, then I must ask you, friend, do you know the Lord Jesus Christ? Because if you have Christ, then you have more things to think of that are good for your mind and for your soul than you could ever exhaust in a hundred lifetimes. The good news of Jesus Christ come to die in place of sinner, sinners it is the truest thing that we can know. Jesus was the most honorable person because he obeyed his Father even to the point of death. God the Father was just when he poured out his wrath and condemnation on his Son as the only means by which we can be reconciled to him. There is nothing purer or more lovely than Jesus Christ who laid down his life, as we just sang, for his friends. And then rising from the grave that we might share in his everlasting life. There is no one under heaven or above earth that is more excellent or more worthy of praise than Jesus, who is our perfect peace. There is no one that I can commend to you more than the God-man, Jesus Christ. We are never, ever without much good to think about because God in love sent his Son to atone for our sins. Blessed be the good news of Jesus Christ. And this forbearing gentle, humble, sacrificial Savior desires nothing from you but for you to turn from your sin and all the things that make you anxious, beloved, and believe that his death really did purchase a ceaseless reason to rejoice always. His sacrifice, his payment for sins, his power, his presence, his peace, Every heavenly benefit is freely made available to you when you trust in him and him alone. Paul gives one more instruction then in our passage in the help to rejoice in God always. And that last instruction is to look at our church leaders. He says, what you have learned received, heard, and seen in him, that is Paul, practice these things. And it says, the God of peace will be with you. Interesting. The God of peace will be with them if they practice what Paul has done. Now, we could consider Paul this morning, how he suffered for Christ in prison, how he faced adversity and tribulation and starving and beatings, and every moment he is a man who we, appears to have the praise of God on his lips. And we would be benefited by that study, I have no doubt. But I also believe God has put leaders like Paul who carry in the traditions in churches where we can actually learn from those people, we can actually see their lives, we can actually hear their teaching, and who we actually receive the word of God from. Church, how are you 
looking at your leaders. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.12, Let no one despise you, Timothy, for your youth, but set for the believers an example in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. Hebrews 13.7 says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. I encourage you, church, to seek the wisdom of your leaders, to consider their manner of life, not because of something that's good in them or because they are great by some worldly standard, but because of what a great God has done in them. The goal is not merely to admire and to give praise to our leaders, but it is to emulate and to praise the God that works in them to serve and to be a Christ-like example to you. Pastors, leaders, we are workers for the church's joy. Paul says that if we practice these things, what we've learned and received and heard, the results will be you will have the presence of God. You will have the God of peace. And so, I'd like to close us in a final exhortation on prayer. This ties everything together. And so, when you tie something together like this, you need to quote a Dutch Reformed pastor. So, I will quote now Andrew Murray, who can say it much better and more concisely than I can. He says this on prayer. The majority of Christian men and women who pray to a living God know very little about real prevailing prayer. Yet prayer is the key that unlocks the door of God's treasure house. It is not too much to say that all real growth in the spiritual life, all victory over temptation, all confidence and peace in the presence of difficulties and dangers, all repose of spirit in times of great disappointment or loss, all habitual communion with God depends upon the practice of secret prayer. The only thing that I would edit to his quote is that you don't have to do it in secret, but you can do it in the spirit of communion, epiakia, loving one another, being gentle and forbearing. Church, there is nothing more for us now to consider but the glory and the good news of our Savior Jesus Christ, the gift of prayer so that we can be made joyful always that pushes back the creep of anxiety in this life until we finally see him face to face. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I ask, Lord, that you would give this body of believers a reason to rejoice. That reason being that Christ and Christ alone has come, he has died. He's been crucified for their sins. And so, Lord, I pray that they would find all the more reason to rejoice this morning. Lord, make known to us the path of life In your presence there is fullness of joy and daily remind us that to trust in your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Amen.